Greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg, and this is another edition of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we're doing things a little bit differently this week. I am actually in the palatial New York City headquarters of National Review, uh, the belly of the beast of the entire National Review empire. And uh, we had a wonderful event last night uh, remembering William F. Buckley, um, who died 10 years ago this week. And uh, I figured since I was here, I would take advantage of the fact that I'm here and grab, I guess, my now old friend. Um, we've known each other for a very long time. Andy McCarthy, who writes for National Review. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jonah. <laughs> um, and uh, so Andy's one of my favorite people, and he's one of the most useful people in this whole rigmarole about Mueller, collusion, Russia stuff. But I find my Andy's utility goes back much further than that. I don't think I've ever told you this, but one of my rules of thumb is like in the Obama years when some theory came out that Obama was you know, doing something crazy or wild, right. illegal. Probably um, true. Often true. Right, Very right, often right. true. I'm not saying it wasn't, but – I knew that you wanted it to be true, <laughs> but you're also honest about this stuff, and the facts didn't take you there. So my my view was Andy will always press the envelope in terms of believing these things are possible, but whenever he runs into a fact that undermines it, he always is honest about it and pulls it back. And it's a very it's a very useful sort of gut check kind of thing. I was like, if McCarthy says this is a problem. Maybe I'll disagree with him. Maybe I won't. Right. But if he says it's not true, then I know it's not true because yeah. he wants this to be true, right? Well, <laughs> and yeah. it's a useful – it's sort of like one of the things that National Review is very good at, right, yeah. is we test these propositions, but we don't run away with them. You know? yeah. Well, I think it's it's probably from my old life though you know, because uh, when you get stuff wrong – I was a prosecutor for a much longer time than most people are a prosecutor yeah. for. I mean even in my office, it's you know three, four years people yeah. – or in an ad, I stayed for almost twenty, uh-huh. and the culture is you're not paralyzed to uh, avoid admitting error, right? Because you have to admit error if, right, you, right, if right. you screw something. Like you have somebody, you know, in custody on bail based on some fact that you've given a court that turns out not to be a fact after you've done right. investigation. So to go into a court and tell the judge, you know, that guy you've held for. A few months. Uh, turns out, you know, right, right. that's a lot. E- that's a lot harder to do than anything I've ever had to do in, <laughs> in journalism. So, but you don't, just, just to, so readers know, you didn't start out as weren't you like a, a marshal or something? Yeah, I was a I was a deputy U.S. marshal in the witness protection program uh-huh. for uh, probably about four years, uh, and that was from when I, I was going to Columbia uh, undergrad uh-huh. and. That's when that started, and then I went to night law school uh-huh. and continued to work at the marshal service during the day. And then I got to know Rudy Giuliani through uh-huh. that because he was, uh, I, I think at the time, he was the number three guy in the Justice Department. Right. And he was very interested in the WITSEC program because he wanted to do organized crime stuff. Right. So when he came up to be the U.S. attorney in New York, they started a program where they hired night law students to work. Days in the U.S. Attorney's Office, so huh. that's how I ended up there. So on the Witsec stuff, how much of it is in your, remotely as cool as the stuff you see on TV? I mean, is it like how often does someone get a new life and a new identity and go work at a Foot Locker, <laughs> sort of like in uh, Better Call Saul? Well, you, you know, it's, it's funny. It's um, it, it, first of all, it's not uh, it, it, it's not at all glamorous. I mean, yeah. my, my job 
was uh, at the age of about 19, instead of having a, a badge and a gun to run around with, I had my uh, scissors and jar of paste, and I would go into the bowels of the Bureau of Vital Records and change people's identities <laughs> so that uh, they could move in next to people like you. Um, <laughs> that would, that would actually explain a lot. <laughs> you know, my neighbors, but. Um, but I can tell this story because it's uh, – because miraculously, this didn't work out. We had a, I had a case one time where we had um, – it was an organized crime case and the main witness was this uh, Sicilian guy from South Florida uh-huh. and he wouldn't cooperate unless we took his whole family into the program. So we relocated 14 Sicilian people wow. to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> and miraculously, that didn't that didn't take. So we had ended up having to move them out pretty quick. I mean, you. I mean, you would think that that you would think. Yeah, I mean, that's, just, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's you would like think, but to, that would make you unusual. It's like it, sending me to Sicily. Yeah, pretty you know? much. Pretty much. <laughs> and uh, and so then, for readers who don't know, or I should say, listeners, my apologies. You were the lead prosecutor on the Blind Shake. Yes, in fact, we had just uh, 25 years ago on February 26th was the was that bombing of the World Trade Center. Good yeah. God. Yeah. It's a long time now. And prior to the age of Trump, your portfolio at NR was mostly war on terror, national security, all that kind of stuff. Before we get to the – you're going to explain all of this stuff to me. It Doesn't it feel like whatever sort of cohesive galvanizing power that – the war on terror stuff had even five years ago was kind of fizzled away. I mean, it would, you know, I I think it's probably for all the the complaining we did, and I did plenty of it during the Obama years about the way they um, approach terrorism, and I think their whole program was a bad idea. This this trying to change it to countering violent extremism instead right, right, right. of dealing with the ideology. But all that said, the night and day difference between now and when I started is how much better the cooperation and the information flow is between the federal and state people mm-hmm. and also the law enforcement side and the intelligence side. They really do cooperate well. And for all the blather that they put out at headquarters about – you know, which is very relativistic about uh, ideology and religion and all that stuff, where the rubber meets the road and they actually do the investigations, they're, they're very yeah. good. So – it was interesting to observe that it's 25 years since the Trade Center bomb, but it's 17 years since 9-11. Yeah. And yeah. we really haven't had – we've been a target the whole time. We really haven't had another one. And if you don't have another one, uh, all of it is kind of rumbling yeah, yeah, yeah. until there's a big attack. So I think it's – you know, a lot of things are bad and we should complain about them because they're, they're really bad. And it's what we do for uh, a living. Yeah, right. <laughs> but this is good. I mean this is an actual yeah. – this is an actual policy success story – and every now and then you have to like take a step back and acknowledge that it is, especially if you, you know, spend the rest of the time complaining about it as yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny. Um, I don't I actually. I don't know. Are you more in the Charlie Cook, David French camp on guns, or are you more nuanced on some I'm, of these things? I'm. Uh, I, I guess more. I guess more nuanced. I mean, I'm not opposed to. Uh, not to, to say that they're not nuanced, but no, they, no, they're, no, they're but, very. I'm not a com- I'm not a complete libertarian yeah. on guns, and what I've always found interesting about uh, about the gun debate, and I I loved uh, you talked about that uh, the thing that Rich did with Charlie on there. Yeah, that was podcast. really good, it was wasn't fabulous. it? Fabulous, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah. But I I always find with the gun debate 
that um, the reason the gun control people and the left in general have a leg up is people are embarrassed to make the the originalist Second Amendment argument. Yeah, that you, we need the guns in case the go- the government becomes tyrannical. Right, and if you're not if you're not willing to make the argument. That is the right. reason we have the Second Amendment in the first place. It, it becomes much easier for the other side to push. Yeah, no, I agree with that because if you take away the the argument about the right to revolt, then why can't you regulate sporting goods? I mean, that's what right. it is, right? right? You know, and if you can have an individual mandate under Obamacare, right. why can't you have? You know, I agree with you. It's a big problem. But what what I find sort of remarkable is the um, in the wake of this horrible shooting, the Parkland shooting. All, you hear this talking point all the time. After 9-11, we did we, – we handled the problem. We confronted it squarely. We did what we needed to do to, to protect ourselves. And that's a fine point for you and me to make. Right. But for the liberals who got their hackles up about how we can't have a foreign policy based on vengeance and you know they're going to – it's outrageous that they're – doing censorship and searching libraries and all of this kind of – they opposed all of the things that we did after 9-11 and now they want to do those things on, about guns. Right. And and I, I forget the hypocrisy part of it. Just politically, the idea of doing the equivalent of what we did after 9-11 against American citizens, the 138 million households that have guns is just politically inconceivable to me. Yeah, except – Here's why I don't think it's 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 not uh, maybe as inconceivable mm-hmm. as, as you would think, and that is what we found during the Obama years is what a difference it makes to have the press as the wind at your back instead of you know the bluster in your face. Yeah. So Obama gets in, and what does he do on the war on terror? He he does a song and dance about Guantanamo Bay, right? Right. But other than that, he adopts all of yeah, the yeah. Bush Cheney yeah. policies. And there's nobody in the media saying, what hypocrisy? This, right, right. What are you doing? They're actually – they're not only cheering him on, the fact that there isn't any big attack. I mean there's an attack here and an attack there and, right. and they, don't, they don't really treat it all that well when they happen. Right. But there's no repetition of 9-11. Right. And he really politically exploits the fact like, for example, we killed bin Laden because there was a war on terror on. We killed bin Laden because after 9-11, Bush changed from – making this a law enforcement problem to making a national security military problem. Mm -hmm. He got the benefit of that and really wrote it hard in the the 2012 campaign. Like he was the commander in chief who killed bin Laden when in fact, I I think in the 2008 election, he he basically ran against every one of those policies. Right, right. But my point is is that to do the kind of things that we did on – for 9-11 – First of all, it's just very different talking about droning foreigners, right? Right, uh, particularly foreign terrorists. It's very different about take, putting battlefield combatants in Gitmo. I mean, whatever your political argument is about this, same FISA courts, Patriot Act, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then say, but to use the analogy of what we did after nine eleven to say we need to do the same thing for gun control yeah. is it's 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 confusing forks and spoons. I mean, they're just different tools for different situations, and um, it's also an environment I think it can't work in anymore. Yeah. So, so right after nine eleven, uh, everybody is of a mind that we have to do whatever we can to right. to stop this. Because we thought there was another one any day now. Right. Right. In right. fact, yeah, and it was a real. It was a war mentality. It was like we're going to be. And, and there, we actually did have intelligence that a, another hit was likely. Yeah. Right. So for a time there, I guess for about two years, 
we were on at least mentally, I think, a war footing. Yeah. Now, I think people's impression of the intelligence community in particular yeah. is when they look you in the eye and they say, trust us, they don't yeah. trust you. And yeah. they don't earn your trust because they've politicized the intelligence for a long time. So I think people are not inclined. It's it, They don't have the same sense of danger even though we do have this horrific yeah. thing down in Florida and we're getting these horrific things more often. But I also think people are not as inclined to yeah. to trust the national security people anymore. Yeah, no, that's a good point. All right. So I think you said you listened to the recent podcast I did. I want to try to do this because as you know, because you're capable of doing it and you sort of – you do it for a living. It is possible to get really deep in the weeds right. on this stuff. So I want to start kind of big picture on this. First of all, do you believe that a president can obstruct justice? Yes. Okay. What does that look like? It has to be an illegal act. Uh-huh. I don't think it can be something that the president has the constitutional power to do. So just to be concrete about it. Uh-huh. He can fire people. But he, he can can't, fire people. can't burn things. But, but here's how we know this. I mean Clinton got impeached mm-hmm. and Nixon would have been impeached. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the articles of impeachment, a key part in both cases is obstruction of justice. It's, right. it's bribery of witnesses in, in Nixon's case and suborning perjury in Clinton's. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of sort of like beating your head off the wall theory arguments about obstruction. And I don't think it's sensible to be having an argument about can the president obstruct justice. We know he can. We've, right. we've got, it's happened. Okay. Um, so we're down to what does he have to do to obstruct justice? And I think two things need to be clear to people. Number one, it has to be an illegal act. It can't be something the president is allowed to do like fire the FBI director mm-hmm. um, or issue a pardon These are things that are in the the president's constitutional authority. Same thing with weighing in on whether somebody should be investigated. Now, it's important to to distinguish here. No one is saying these are good things to do Mm -hmm. and that you shouldn't have a political blowback for doing them. And maybe even impeachable. Yes. Well, that's the the, the second point and I I should just – Sorry, get on with, to, no, no, you're yeah, right. Yeah. But the, the because I, I will get off on a, on uh-huh. tangents here because there's tangents everywhere. No, I mean, I know, every place I know. you go here is a yeah. minefield of it. But the second thing is, no prosecutor and, and Mueller is a fine, very experienced prosecutor. No prosecutor in his right mind would believe that he could indict the president mm-hmm. because there's too many structural protections in the Constitution for the president to be pardoned. Not least that he can, I mean, to be prosecuted because mm-hmm. he can pardon himself. Right. Fire the prosecutor. No president who doesn't want to be indicted can be indicted. Mm-hmm. So you would have to be thinking long term about impeachment, not indictment. And that's important because all these niceties about obstruction and what do you have to do to obstruct and what can be obstruction. We have a lot of law on what obstruction is, but impeachment's not a legal proceeding, it's a political proceeding. And eventually, if there are articles of impeachment, it's not going to be about the niceties mm-hmm. of obstruction law. It's going to be whatever Congress decides is a high crime and misdemeanor. Okay, so you said that Mueller – and correct me if I got it wrong. You said that Mueller would have to be looking more long-term at something like impeachment or something along those lines. I thought one of the reasons why you were supposed to have a special counsel is possibly to exonerate the target of the investigation, right? I mean right. that seems to be – there, there's this weird question begging in all of this that if Mueller doesn't do something that fatally blows – that delivers a fatal blow to Trump or puts 
the people around him, from Jared to whoever, in jail, then Mueller will have failed, yeah. right? And the pro-Trump partisans will say he failed. The anti-Trump partisans will really say he failed. Seems to me exoneration is a perfectly valid and important role. You know, I just, I've been saying for two years now, I just want to know what happened. And I'm willing to wait, right? You know, because I don't have the expertise that you have. And it would not shock me at all if Donald Trump is very, is guilty of something. And it would not shock me at all if he's not. Um, but we live – because I think in part we've turned politics into this reality show thing where we want it to be a drama. Right. The press reported on Obama in ways that he was always just the hero of the story. And so he could say, I don't have the constitutional power to do DACA. And then when he changes his mind and does DACA, the press doesn't say – yeah, doesn't say you violated the constitution on your own terms. They right. say, yay, you're a hero right. you know, right. and look at how Republicans are going crazy. And the same, they do the same thing with, with Trump where he's now the villain for the mainstream press. But he's the hero of sort of the Fox press. And that's not how the law is supposed to work. It's not, it's, it's not a scripted reality show. It's supposed to be we go where the facts are. And what's so terrible about Robert Mueller just finding out he didn't do it? Yeah, that, that, that's right. I'm not – I've never been – and I, I, I've leaned in this direction, but I'm not, uh, I'm not there. I've never been one of these people who thinks that Mueller necessarily has an agenda mm-hmm. either to indict Trump, which it would be impossible for the reasons we've said, or to impeach him. Mm-hmm. Now, I think he's got people around him sure. who do, and I think he, he exhibited terrible judgment in his staffing decisions. Right. Because whatever he does, because he did that, there are going to be people who say it's political, not about the evidence, right? But I've never thought that Mueller necessarily wants Trump impeached. I think he sees his mandate as getting to the bottom of what happened with Russian interference in the election and getting to the bottom particularly of this thread about whether there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, which, by the way, we should not know anything about because that's mm-hmm. supposed to be a classified right, right, counterintelligence. Right, right. Ad, but but to, to just stay with this part of it. So we have these pleas last week and I, you may want to get to this, but mm-hmm. l- let me just jump sure, ahead for a second. Ahead. They indict uh, – they do a superseding indictment on Manafort and Gates mm-hmm. on – at the end of the week and then the next day Gates pleads guilty, right? Mm-hmm. It seemed clear to me from – for a long time that what – Mueller is trying to do is squeeze Manafort. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if there's anyone on the planet who deserves it, it's, it's yeah. Manafort, right? right? But that – what I think that may be – and this is as, as someone who's gone through this as a prosecutor before. Sometimes you get to the point in your investigation where you've hit a wall mm-hmm. and but you've narrowed the wall down so that you know there's either a case or there isn't and here's the guy who can tell you one way or the other. Yeah. I think he thinks the guy is Manafort. Yeah. I don't think he's trying to get Manafort to say there was collusion. Mm-hmm. I think he's trying to get the question answered Yeah, one way or the other. All right. So I, I just want to back up on one thing. So uh, our friend Shannon Coffin, right. Right, uh, he's the only name I will drop here uh, on this. But I had dinner at his house a few months ago and um, and I was one of the only my, – my wife and I were among the only non-lawyers at the table. And I asked the que- question I'm about to ask you and the responses were interesting to me. Let's say, for the sake of argument, a president has committed a crime prior to being president, right? He ripped his mattress tag. He murdered somebody. He he 
praised O'Doul's as a good beverage. I don't know. It doesn't matter, right? But some, some seriously grave crime. And then for political reasons, you get a special counsel or a special prosecutor, right, to look into entirely different allegations. But you have a reasonable expectation if you're the president that in the process of looking into those allegations, he will find out about the dead hooker that you buried in the, the Nevada desert. Right. So you fire him. Right. According to you, that's not obstruction. Right? Correct. So there are no circumstances under which a president has the uh, – you fancy lawyers, mens rea, right? Right. Where he says – I can't let this guy find out about crime X. That's not the crime he's charged with looking at. So I'm going to fire him. Right. And you don't think that's a criminal act on the I, part of the president? I don't. But here's here's I don't understand why people get whipped up about that. Uh-huh. And maybe it's because I, I have a different perspective on the divide between law and politics. Uh-huh. So. When the when the country was founded, there was no Justice Department. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, the the Attorney General was the president's lawyer, basically, uh, and it, it, to the extent the federal government was involved in in litigation, it was civil litigation, not mm-hmm. criminal litigation. We don't have a Justice Department until 1870. We don't have a FBI until 1908. Right. The framers did not intend the president to be checked by criminal prosecution. Um, that's a later development that happens because our idea of federal law enforcement is is night and day different than right. what it was at the at the time of the founding. In the scenario you just articulated, mm. the president would be impeached, and mm. that's what should happen. And then once he's out, he can't fire any more prosecutors. And if they want to investigate him and, and prosecute him for the crime that he was trying to avoid prosecution on, he no longer has the ability to obstruct that. But in the meantime, it's not. It, it wasn't the intention to get him out of power by prosecutor. Okay, so here's again. I'm asking this as a layman. Yeah, sure. Right? If he gets away with firing him, we'll never find out about the murder. Yeah. Right. So he can't be impeached. Well, no, he be, he'll be impeached for firing the prosecutor. Okay, so but he fired. Well, you so know, you you think he'll be impeached if he fires Mueller? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think the Republicans will cave? On that, and well, you know, look, I I shouldn't. There's, a, you know, you, we're going to go lawyer here now, right? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. So there's nuance on uh, in 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 every uh, in every question. If he fired Mueller now, uh-huh. he would absolutely be impeached. Uh-huh. If he fired Mueller after making a record that he hadn't done anything, and Mueller is is on this, uh, you know, Captain Quig kind, uh-huh. kind of routine, people might feel very difficult, different about it. But I, I, again. You know, injustice happens in the legal system, mm-hmm. uh, but this is not a legal problem. It's a political problem. So what we learned with uh, just recently with Obama is the president can pretty much do what he can politically get away with. Right. And the same thing is true of Trump in the sense of, you know, if he fires the prosecutor under circumstances where politically he won't be there, there aren't the votes there to impeach him. Yeah, he's going to get away with it. Uh huh. So. All right, so one of I, I'm very sympathetic to all that. One of my big complaints, it's like with Hillary Clinton, right? Uh, I must have made written this column ten times, where everyone said there's no smoking gun in this, there's no smoking gun in that, and I was always like, 
What are you talking about? First of all, first of all, this whole idea of a smoking gun. How many cases in your legal experience did you ever have where you're like, well, there's no smoking gun, so we can't proceed? <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, it's just, smoking gun is supposed to be the quintessential drop dead lead pipe cinch piece of evidence, right? I mean, right. they're the cases that plead. Right. No, right. exactly. Right. 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 And so, and second of all, we did have a smoking gun. It was the server. It was like sitting out in the open, all smoky. Right. You know, and we know she did it, right? And, um, but people always, people wanted to, one of my problems with politics and whenever it comes to this kind of stuff is people want to outsource these questions to the lawyers, right? right? And, you know, and de Tocqueville says that in America, all questions end up in the courts and all that kind of stuff. But for me, uh, to the extent the only to, to the extent I'm willing to say that Don, I think Donald Trump colluded with Russia is that he gave a speech in public where he said, "Hey Russia, get her emails right." right. And to me, that's the that's a smoking gun. Now, right. whether you think that was terrible or not, reasonable people can disagree. I don't think he meant that he was joking when he says he was joking, but it's one of these things where everyone is sort of searching for this thing that will. Let them off the hook about having to actually make their own judgments. And so they go to the lawyers and the lawyers say this and the lawyers say that and all the rest. And the problem is, is that that's how our politics works now, right? Right. So, um, everywhere. So, if yeah. Congress doesn't want to decide, they create a blue ribbon commission, right? Or a bureaucracy or hand it over to the courts and then right. complain about how the courts handle it. Right. Now, right. this is one of my, right. my meta complaints is that the, the founders never envisioned the idea that any of these branches of government wouldn't want more power, right. you know? And right. yet the Congress just want to be a bunch of friggin' pundits and the president, he just wants to make America great again. He doesn't want to actually like – he keeps – I salute what Trump is doing, I, Not maybe not for his motives, but the fact that he's actually saying, Congress, you handle it on right. all sorts of things. And then Congress isn't stepping up right. and it's infuriating to me. But since – I guess where I'm going with this is that since this is the way our politics have turned, how do you get out of this? I mean, how do you? It, it, it's it's a kind of what there's a there's a English philosopher James Harrington who calls it priestcraft, right? Where basically we've turned lawyers into priests in this country, and they get to decide whether or something is. I don't. I, I'm fine asking you about what's legal and not legal, but you are not any more entitled to tell me what's right or wrong right. than anybody else. But that's kind of the culture that we live in now, right? And that if something's not illegal, then we can't say it's wrong. And this no, well, it, it, even the Mueller investigation is a classic example of this because it, what they assigned to Mueller is a counterintelligence investigation, right. right? There's nothing about being a lawyer that makes you adept at intelligence matters. Right. In the Justice Department, lawyers are not si- assigned to counterintelligence right, right, cases. Right, 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 right. It's it's not lawyer work. It's it's uh, you know it's analyst work. Right. But I find, and I found this from the from the moment I got out of the office, I I get asked to do you know interviews, shows, whatever, and they will assume that you're an expert in everything because yeah, yeah. you have a law degree. Right. And it's it's you know I mean basically it's it's a fun profession in the sense that you never know what kind of problem is going to fall on your desk, and you have to roll up your sleeves and learn about things that you never right. knew you'd learn about before. But you're not an authority on anything and you're quite right the way that they – the way this is rigged now, they make you an authority on everything. Yeah. Which is scary if you know most of the lawyers I know. No, exactly. I mean, I, you're a great guy but you know, it's, like, well, it's like with the Supreme Court. 
if if the Supreme Court is going to opine as Kennedy does about the meaning of life, right? Why are we putting lawyers on the Supreme Court? You know, we can put priests or philosophers on there if that's their role, but yeah, that's not but what their role you, you is know, supposed to be. But here's where they they got it wrong. I mean, the Federalist Papers tell us was I think Hamilton uh-huh. who says that uh, you know it's the weakest branch because it doesn't have uh, all it has is judgment, right? right. It doesn't have the purse, doesn't have the guns. But you're, if you're in a culture where everybody's trying to avoid accountability, right. you're going to reap a lot of power in that system because judgment is what we're asking for, right? We, right? As long as I don't have to decide, you're the ones we kick it to, yeah. right? So we're great like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We you know, kick it to them and then the other days of the week, we complain about how they handle it. But, yeah. No, it, <laughs> it's weird because what I always think of, it's a strange pop culture reference for this, but the ending of Miracle on 34th Street where no one wants to say he's not Santa <laughs> And then the U.S. Postal Service <laughs> solves it for everybody. You know, the, the judge is like, I, for one, I'm not going to second guess the right. U.S. Postal Service. And so because they deliver this guy with a beard a bunch of letters, he's Santa, right? Because we've gone postal. All right. So uh, back to uh, more serious affairs. The FISA stuff, right? So why don't you just explain for I – won't, I won't put any spin on the ball. How do you think Devin Nunes has handled this stuff? How do you think Schiff has handled it? Um, should we be knowing any of this stuff? And how much do you think is actually relevant to the Mueller investigation? I think that that Nunes has not been perfect uh-huh. by any means. But I also think the people who criticize him have tunnel vision about what they're criticizing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, to say this shouldn't be politics and it shouldn't be – in fact, this is a – inherently political dispute. Right, right. This is a situation where the the incumbent Democratic administration, having tanked the case against the Democratic candidate for president who had daunting criminal evidence against her, mm-hmm. turns the law enforcement and intelligence apparatus of the government, fueled by opposition research provided by the Democratic candidate, mm-hmm. on the Republican candidate. I mean that's an inherently political dispute. So, you know, with due respect to our friend David French, who's like upset about the politicizing of all this, I don't I don't see how this could have been anything other than political. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's not a case of a congressional committee in a back in a vacuum attacking law enforcement or attacking the intelligence community. It's a situation where with the with law enforcement, the same law enforcement actors having in inexplicable ways made the case against Hillary Clinton go away, mm-hmm. uh, suddenly doing something that would have been very controversial a long time ago, which is using the uh, intelligence authorities of the government to actually conduct a basically a, a, an espionage investigation on the opposition candidate. Now, I've never been one of these people who, who've said that that in principle is something that should never happen. And in fact, I think that if there was strong evidence that the Trump campaign was in some kind of a criminal conspiracy with, with Russia, it would have been irresponsible for the Obama people not to mm-hmm. investigate. I have no problem with that uh, in principle. But 
you the trigger here has to be very serious evidence. Mm-hmm. It can't be something frivolous. And you have an obligation to to make sure it's something that's very serious after you've taken a serious case against Mrs. Clinton and and just blown it up. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the framework for it. Now, Congress has to be able to conduct oversight over the law enforcement and intelligence arms of the government because otherwise they cannot be held accountable. And it's simply a fact and it's a fact that we talk about a lot when the Democrats are running the investigations rather Mm -hmm. than trying to defend against them that national security, classified information, all that stuff is is like a black box. And a lot of the time when they're telling you we have to preserve our national defense secrets and our methods and sources of intelligence – that's absolutely true mm-hmm. and it's the kind of stuff where if you if you're actually I, I mean I've prosecuted cases where stuff had to be turned over in discovery where my worst nightmare of the whole nine-month case was did we turn over something that had a line in it that would tell somebody who a source is that right, might get right. them killed. So that stuff is absolutely true. They have to be able to protect that but it becomes a very convenient black box for them to hide things that are either – embarrassing or mm-hmm. illegal and you're not always aware going in which is which mm-hmm. and the more they've looked you in the eye and lied to you about aspects of a law enforcement investigation the less credibility they have when they look you in the eye and they tell you I can't tell you what that's about because it's national security right and then I think they have even less credibility when they act like the sky is falling for a couple of weeks and say, we can't turn this over because it's, it's just terrible. The, the terrible consequences that will come from revealing this information and it will strengthen our enemies, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you see the, the information and it turns out what they didn't want to tell you was they used a partisan opposition research screed that they hadn't corroborated mm-hmm. to – fuel a FISA investigation. That's, that's the thing they didn't want to reveal. Again, I am not one of these people who says absolutely you cannot use political opposition research in an investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've pointed out to people a number of times, as a prosecutor, I took information from terrorists, sure. from mafia murderers, from swindlers. Um, you get information from you know jilted lovers, right. people who have all kinds of biases against the people you're investigating. But the way you get from here to there is you don't just take the information and run with it to a court. The middle step is you give it to the FBI and they corroborate it. And then you use the details that have been corroborated in whatever court process you're looking for. Okay, so but a point which you've made and I agree with that we tend to sort of Blur the distinctions between a intelligence operation and a criminal proceeding, right? So assuming that you're stipulating for the sake of argument that, that your characterization of the, the Steele memo and its use and all of the rest, your objection – I mean none of this stuff could be used in a criminal proceeding against Carter Page, right? Because I mean, this is or, – or at least that's not – that was not the in, initial intent of it, right? It, it can be used. I'm actually prosecuted one of the few cases you'll find where FISA evidence gets introduced in a Uh a criminal proceeding. It can be used, but it's not supposed to be your objective going into the investigation. In other words, if your objective is to build a criminal case, then you need to comply with the Fourth Amendment and and go the criminal route. 
if you're properly doing a FISA investigation and you discover crime, it's kind of like you give the FBI a search warrant to go find cocaine in the house. They don't find cocaine, but they find a bunch of guns with the serial numbers right, right, obliterated. Right. They don't have to ignore that stuff because they weren't looking for it in the first place. Right. But you so have like to be – like Robert Mueller finds uh, money laundering. <laughs> yes, right. 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 As he tells us. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so – and so – the idea that, that this was I – mean, part of the problem is is that if you listen to the hardcore sort of uh, primetime Fox partisans on either side or primetime MSNBC, right? Because right, right. I mean I agree with you that the Democrats kind of beclown themselves in hyping the dangers to national security and the Nunes memo. At the same time, the Nunes memo people were – and I like Devin Nunes. I've known Devin for a long time. He's a nice guy. But they were saying that this is the – this now, is the smoking gun. This no, proves they were, everything. And they, they said it was down. bigger than Watergate. Sebastian Gorka right. said that this story was 10,000 times bigger than the abuses of the British crown that justified the American Revolution. Now, um, <laughs> big if true. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, – I'm, I'm taking the under. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, talk about you know we started talking about the right to revolution and stuff. Right, I mean, right, right. If that were remotely true, people should be grabbing their guns and heading into the streets, right? right. So, but I, for me, both sides have sort of hyped all of this yes. stuff, which is one of the reasons why I've been perfectly happy to sit on the sidelines and just wait to see what happens. But you think it is a legitimate claim to say that spying on Carter Page is tantamount to spying on the entire Trump campaign? Why? Well, I wouldn't say the entire. You can't spy on the entire Trump campaign unless you unless you spy on the entire Trump campaign, right? right. Um, however, I think it's completely disingenuous to say we weren't spying on the Trump campaign because the Trump campaign had officially cut ties with Carter Page uh, in September, or well, I guess when that when the press hit uh-huh. uh, that that steel was leaking to the press uh, that. That hung Page out for these meetings in uh, in Russia. That happened in mid September. So sometime after that, they they severed ties. Right. When you go up on the phone, mm-hmm. uh, which is law enforcement parlance for you know you, you start the wiretap or you right. start the surveillance, and particularly when you go up on email and text, you are not limited to forward going communications. You can get all the stored email and all the stored texts. And of I, Carter Pages. Correct. Yeah, okay. And what I believe they figured they would find when they started was going backwards communications between him and the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, it's impossible, Jonah, right now to put yourself – or it seems impossible. Knowing everything we know now, the hard thing is to put yourself in the mindset that they had when they started. Mm-hmm. Here's what I think happened. I think they believe the Steele dossier. Mm-hmm. I think uh, – and I, I think on a certain level, it wasn't unreasonable for them because there was a certain predisposition about Trump, which was hardly unique to the FBI and the Justice Department, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's important is Steele had helped them on the FIFA soccer investigation which the Obama administration regarded as its most important racketeering prosecution in eight years mm-hmm. of the administration. They thought he he provided key help to them in that. So he came to them with a lot of credibility 
And I think in some ways he was pushing on an open door because they were prepared to believe the worst of Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump was saying reprehensible things about Russia and he brought Manafort and Gates into his campaign. And this guy, Carter Page, you know, I don't think they should have gotten a FISA warrant on him, but he's a jackass and he's a and he's a Kremlin apologist, right? Mm -hmm. So they see all this coming and they see what they see in the the way of allegations in the Steele dossier and I think they believed him. Mm -hmm. And I think they probably thought if you believe the Steele dossier, then you believe that there was a corrupt conspiracy between – the Trump campaign and the Kremlin, mm -hmm. that Manafort was running it and that he was using Page as an intermediary mm -hmm. and that Page really was having these conversations with people like uh, Sechin, uh, Igor Sechin, well, Ivan, I think. Is it Ivan or Igor? I can't remember. But Sechin is the guy's name, the, the Rosneff guy. Right. And this other guy, Divyekin, who, mm -hmm. was, uh, who was a, a Putin administration official. So if you believe all that – then you think that once you get up on the phone, if you go back in the guy's stored emails and texts, you're going to find some dynamite stuff. And I think that's what they thought they would find. And so, so therefore, doesn't that mean that the initial FISA application was done in good faith? Well, no. I mean to be in good faith, you still have to <laughs> – let's say I think you're guilty mm -hmm. of, uh, of murder and I really in good faith believe you're guilty of murder. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the evidence. Mm -hmm. I don't get to say because I in good faith think you're guilty of murder. Let's get rid of that whole due process thing. They still have to, to, to go through the FISA hoops and they still mm -hmm. have to go through their investigative hoops. And part of your investigative hoops is you corroborate the information that you're asking a court to rely on to do an eavesdropping warrant. Mm -hmm. And the thing I don't – I think the, the real misdirection here is we've been having this big old argument which is appropriate enough to have about Steele's – credibility. But Steele's credibility is not the problem. Mm -hmm. If I went into a judge when I was a prosecutor and I said, I think there's, there's drug trafficking going on in this house and the judge says to me, well, what's your probable cause? And I say, see here, I have my case agent. He's a great agent. He's <laughs> agent of the year. Every year he testifies in all these uh, uh, proceedings as an expert. He gets like uh, the gold star for agent of the year. The judge would look at me like I had three heads. Yeah. He would say, don't tell me about the guy who aggregated the information. Tell me about why should I believe the sources who saw or heard the factual allegations that you're asking me to rely on for purposes of probable cause. So what the judge wants to know is not whether Steele, who is in this instance is the aggregator of the information, mm -hmm. not whether he's credible – and it really shouldn't matter whether he got the information from Hillary Clinton or, or right. Osama bin Laden or, who, or whoever, right? What matters is his sources of information, is there a basis for the judge to credit what they're alleging? Mm -hmm. And in every warrant, what you do is you say, you know, informant number one, you know, had this transaction with the, with the suspect. And he has provided information to DEA on six occasions in the last year and a half and has been corroborated each time. Or, mm -hmm. you, In other words, you give the judge something to hang his hat on with respect to the guy who's giving you the information that you're asking him to, to find probable, probable cause based on. Mm -hmm. That's what they didn't do here. So what they did was they basically took – they did what I told everybody they would never do, mm -hmm. which, is, which is probably why I'm more steamed about this than, <laughs> than I ought to be. I mean I told people again and again who said – 
you know, they took the Steele dossier and they put a nice little caption on it that said, you know, in Ray Carter Page, mm-hmm. and then they brought it over to the FISA court. And I kept telling people that's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. What you're going to find ultimately is Seal's name's not even going to be on whatever they filed. What what they will have done is the FBI will scrub the allegations in the dossier. They'll pick out five or six that are important. They'll go out and verify them, and they will put those allegations in the FISA warrant, and mm-hmm. you'll never even hear about Steele. Mm-hmm. But at least they'll know who the sources are, and, and they'll know what they're asking the judge to rely on. Turns out I was wrong. They gave the judge basically the Steele dossier. Maybe not the whole dossier, but they gave the judge the Carter Page allegations – under circumstances where they had not corroborated them. And, and we had, know this, right? I mean, we, we have Well, not- here's what we know. We know this is what um, Grassley and Graham say mm-hmm. in their memo, which, by the way, I think is probably gives us more insight than either Nunez yeah. or um, Schiff. Uh, Schiff because they actually quote from what the FBI and what the Justice Department said mm-hmm. in, the, in the affidavit. And uh, Comey apparently testified. Uh, I'm sorry. He didn't testify. He gave a briefing to Grassley and I think Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee in which they asked him, why did you rely on these sources if you hadn't corroborated them or verified them? And what what Jim apparently told them was, well, we believed Steele. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we believed Steele, we ran with okay. what he brought. Now – he may have believed Steele and, and look, I know Comey for 30 years. He wouldn't go in with information he didn't believe mm-hmm. or he wouldn't he, – he's not the one who would have done this but he wouldn't have signed off on it. Right. But the fact that I, I know him and trust him and like him that way mm-hmm. doesn't mean that he gets to make up his own rules about how you do this. You don't go in unless you can tell the judge the, the allegations are corroborated mm-hmm. and – that fault, by the way, is, is one that you have to ask not only the FBI and the Justice Department, but what court, what judge signs off on a warrant like that? Mm-hmm. So. All right. So uh, a couple of factual questions I just don't know the answer to. The standards of evidence for a warrant in a FISA court, are they the same? Because you, you keep analogizing this to criminal cases, right? right? But this is an intelligence level. Are the, are the standards the same or are they different and how so? Evidence is evidence. Uh-huh. But the standard, the legal standard that you have to satisfy is different. So if you get a criminal warrant, I have to show probable cause, A, that, a, that a crime has been committed right. and that the instrumentality I want to eavesdrop on, I'm likely to find evidence of, of the crime. Mm-hmm. For purposes of national security under FISA – to get a warrant on someone, you have to show probable cause that they are acting as an agent of a foreign power. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing – there's two different definitions for this in FISA, but the one we're talking about because it's an American citizen. With an American citizen, you have to show that they're involved in clandestine activity actively and knowingly mm-hmm. on behalf of the foreign power and that the clandestine activity likely violates American federal criminal law. Mm-hmm. And the criminal laws they talk about in the statute are like international terrorism, sabotage, sort of espionage activity where you where you use false identities on behalf of the foreign power, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's um you know for for I, I know there's a it's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by David Rivkin and Lee Casey uh, yesterday and they're friends of mine and I mm-hmm. usually agree with them, but I thought they they understated 
what the standard was. It's not you can't just show that the guy's an agent of a foreign power. Mm-hmm. You have to show he's doing active activity on behalf of the foreign power, and that the active activity might be criminal. Which is which is uh, it may not be as demanding as the criminal law, but it's close. And do you so like Devin Nunes has been asked? I remember a couple of weeks ago on one of the Sunday shows, I think, or maybe it was Special Report. Devin Nunes was asked, "Have you?" corroborated anything in the Steele memo, in the Steele dossier. And Devin gave a squirrely answer. He means, what? Like, there's a country called Russia? You know, that's true. But, you know, he basically implied that there was nothing else that was true whatsoever in the Steele dossier. I don't know about the P-tapes and the hookers and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, I really don't want to. Right, right. But a couple questions. Shouldn't the news committee – have looked at this by now, and so isn't that answer probably if 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 he if he is saying that there's nothing true in the Steele dossier, then that's interesting. I don't believe that that's true. Well, right? I don't, but I he, I don't think that's what he's I don't think that what he's that is what he's saying. He's also, by the way, not a lawyer, uh-huh. um, which is part of why he had Gowdy look at this thing rather right. than look at because they limited him to one person could look at it. Right. right? So here's what the, what he's relying on. I think is the testimony of McCabe. Andrew McCabe was the deputy director of the FBI. Right. He testified, I think it was in December of 2017, in a closed hearing for that committee. Right. And they pressed him hard on whether anything was corroborated. And he insisted that some was, but when they pushed him on, well, what was it? Mm-hmm. What he basically came up with was, well, we learned – the Steele dossier says that Page had these meetings with these big Russian guys in Russia. Mm-hmm. And they learned that Page did go to Russia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they learn that he. T- so they're saying we learn that he did take a trip to Russia. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, there's a, there's like 170 million people in Russia, right? Right. Um, so saying that he was physically present in the country really doesn't corroborate whether he had the meetings. But the government kind of says that uh, you know, on some level, that corroborates the Steele dossier. Now, that's why it's such a it's a it's a tough question. Mm-hmm. To answer, I mean, common sense says that's not really corroboration because it doesn't really tell you the thing you want to know, which is right. did these meetings happen? But you know, it, it, the way circumstantial cases work, and I, by the way, that you were talking before about smoking gun. Mm-hmm. The other, the other uh, term that's used that uh, is used wrongly all the time is circumstantial. Oh, that's just a circumstantial right, case. Right. As a prosecutor, I would a million times rather try a circumstantial case than yeah, yeah. a case that relied on like an informant, right? right. But with a circumstantial case, it's always bits and pieces. So there's never, there's never like one-to-one c- perfection between the thing that you have to prove and the thing that you corroborate it with. It's always bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. You know? So you find out the guy went to Russia and then you find out that he stayed in this hotel and then you find out that Session stayed in a different hotel but it was right across the street you know, and you, mm-hmm. you get to it that way. So we call each of those little pieces corroboration. Right, right, right. But no one of them corroborates what you're – Right, right. The other one that's misused a lot, and I know it's a bugaboo of yours, is fruit of the poison – poison fruit of the poison tree, right? right which right, is right. like – I think some people just like to say it because it sounds cool. Yeah, you know? yeah. If I could say it in Latin, I'd be, <laughs> I would have been first in my class. You know, this but, is Bill Buckley's magazine. Right. right so um, I want to get to where you think all this is going, but the last sort of question on this is – you know, so Trey Gowdy says that whatever you make of FISA gate, it really has zero bearing on um, – I don't want to put words in Trey Gowdy's mouth, but I'm pretty sure that's his position. 
my position is whatever you think of FISA gate, right? Right. It has almost no bearing whatsoever on the Mueller investigation, except that you know, and and I think I like Ron Johnson a lot, but his desire to take these texts out of context and talk about the secret society and the you know all that kind of stuff. I agree with you that this is a grotesquely politicized thing, and you can't get out of that, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, if you were to listen to Sean Hannity every night, every single, every single thing about the FISA gate stuff is proof that Mueller has to be fired, and there's proof that the Mueller investigation has to go, right? So, am I being unfair about saying the connection is basically not there at all, or? I wouldn't say it's not there at all, but uh you know, one of the reasons I stress from the beginning that this was a counterintelligence investigation, not a criminal investigation, is because I regarded Mueller's mandate, even though I think this is improper under the regulations, which right. talk about criminal investigations. It doesn't matter what I think. He got appointed, right? right? He was given a counterintelligence investigation. The overarching mission of the counterintelligence investigation is to get to the bottom of what Russia did to right. interfere with the 2016 election. Now, he's obviously spending a lot of his energy trying to make these – criminal cases. But that's still his main job mm -hmm. and that really doesn't have anything to do with the, the FISA gate stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, where I think there is crossover is to the extent that people come to the conclusion that the whole accusation that Trump was involved in a corrupt, traitorous conspiracy with Russia, the FISA gate stuff could knock that narrative out of the park. Now, that's that would not mean that Mueller's investigation is illegitimate, mm -hmm. but that is a large part of the reason why Mueller was appointed in the first place. It's the reason, for example, that that uh, you know Sessions is recused. It's you know it, it's 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 governed a lot of what's happened here. This whole ac accusation that there's collusion between Trump and Russia. And if it turns out that the, the main suspicion of collusion between Trump and Russia is a function of the Steele dossier and the Steele dossier ends up being discredited, you know, you're going to still have bits and pieces like Manafort's connections and Gates's connections and, you know, Page uh, is a kind of an idiot Kremlin apologist, but mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to find that he did anything criminal. So it's not like Russia will be, you know, completely sidelined. But the narrative of Trump-Russia collusion will be gone. It won't really matter if Mueller is at that point moved on to obstruction or something yeah, else. I mean I, I have two responses to that. I mean I, I take your point and it's a good point. But uh, first of all, there's my whole point about the smoking gun thing where you know Trump basically said in open, in public, hey, Russia, do this, right? Yeah, although he didn't quite say it the way that you – I mean you say I – heard, I heard you describe this as he said you know, I, he, he basically invited them to hack her again and that's right. not really what he did. What he said was you know, he hopes they find the email. So Fair enough. they were – if you remember at the time, one of the things we complained about with the Hillary investigation was that because she had, she had like zero common sense about security, right. we assumed that every – Right. Every okay. intelligence organization had her emails, right? right? And Trump was obsessed over the 30,000 emails. I right. mean he's, he was talking about it constantly at that part of the campaign. And so I mean I, I guess my, my point is, is that yeah, the Steele dossier has a big part to do with the narrative. But it doesn't seem to me that that narrative 
is entirely from the Steele dossier. It has to do with the public statements of the president of the United States and his candidate Trump who to this day refuses to criticize the president of Russia, yes. refuses to acknowledge that there was meddling even though every single of his relevant cabinet secretaries have said that Russia had meddled and is continuing to meddle. We just had um, Pompeo say yesterday that he has not been charged with doing anything about combating this stuff or something along those lines. He can't be. He cannot be? Well, not on the American side. I, yeah, obviously, okay, right. Right. He can't do anything. Homeland Security would have to do that right. here because by their charter, they can't operate here. And then um, you have – it seems to me that the, the driver of the narrative has been less the Steele dossier and more um, – I mean and more the fact that Trump fired Comey. Yes. And, and then talked about having tapes and um, – and then basically said to NBC News, I fired him because of the Russia investigation. And then he says that thing in the Oval Office where he says, took a big load off my back because right. I got rid of Comey. That's not the Steele dossier. That's the president of the United States doing really weird stuff that right. I admit if you're on his side on everything, I'm, I'm not saying no, no, you no. are. I know you've criticized a lot of that stuff. But that's much – to me, that's politically much more significant in driving this narrative than – what the Steele dossier fed to Frank Foer at Slate or at the Atlantic and that kind of stuff. Look, I think if I think it was a terrible mistake to fire Comey for a variety of reasons. Not least, I think that I, I disagree intensely with the way he handled the Hillary investigation. Sure. I disagree with a lot Me of too. stuff. But on balance, he was a very good director, mm -hmm. uh, and you know the things that you want an FBI director for, he was really good at them. If he if firing Comey was a was a terrible mistake on his part, but I think he would have ridden it out probably without a special counsel if he had been forthright about why he fired him, mm. and then that would have made the statements he made about Russia a, a lot more sensible. In other words, Comey tells him three times he's not a suspect, he's not under investigation, but Comey refuses to t say publicly what he's saying privately. And in the meantime, Comey, I think very inappropriately, publicly announces that there is an investigation and, and, and that they're looking at this collusion angle between Trump and Russia. Mm -hmm. It's not bad for them to look into that. It's bad to say it out right, loud. Right. You never say that out loud. So from Trump's perspective, the FBI director is telling him he's not a suspect and he's saying things to the rest of the country that, that the country can only assume that the president is suspect and that there is this big, huge uh, Trump-Russia conspiracy. I think if he had said, honestly, I'm firing you because of that, mm -hmm. people would have understood it. And they also would have understood when he said, you know, this Russia thing, that's a load off my back. They would have understood that what he meant was that he was never a suspect and he wanted people to know he wasn't a suspect, not that he was afraid that he had, he would, had been in com, uh, you know, complicit in this Trump-Russia conspiracy. Right. But he was completely dishonest about the way he fired him. So he tried to push it off on – the Justice Department, right. and they put it on the Hillary email thing. It wasn't about what he said it was about. First, he said he was uh, he was just following the Justice Department's recommendation. Then when that didn't fly, he said he did it over Russia. He hung Rosenstein out to dry. Right. And Rosenstein, uh, you know, I don't know Rosenstein, but, uh, you know, I think you can see what happened here. He panicked. He didn't like being the uh, the center of criticism, mm -hmm. and he said, "I'm not going to deal with this." And he appointed Mueller. Mm -hmm. If they hadn't handled the firing the way they handled it, he wouldn't have gotten a special 
counsel. And I think if he had kept Comey where he was, maybe this thing wouldn't be over now, but mm-hmm. it might be close to over. And it wouldn't be the oxygen-sucking drama that we right. have, which was, is valuable in its own right. right. All right. I know I've kept you long. I have one or two other questions I want to ask you about where this goes uh, particularly. But you know, when you were talking about Manafort and Steele, I mean Manafort and Page and all these guys – it did remind me about how Donald Trump promised to hire the best people, <laughs> and that reminded me that I needed to actually uh, uh, mention our advertiser this week, which is Zip Recruiter, which really does help you hire the best people. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> um, um, so are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? Zip Recruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. No Manaforts will get through this system. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, Remnant listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's right, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter.com. Slash dingo. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. And if Donald Trump had used it, he would be at 50, 60 percent in the approval. Man, we'd be in a different place. (laughs) Um, All right. So I I don't want you to get away without, first of all, responding to my basic theory, which I've aired on this podcast before, which is just that I think that, first of all, Donald Trump understandably feels like – and with – some good reason feels like all of this Russia stuff is a way to deny him credit for his election victory. And that's obviously part of it, right? right? That's certainly for the resistance crowd. They want, they need to believe that the election was stolen from them, right? right? And the fact that, you know, Hillary won the popular vote, I mean, just, it's adding, it's rubbing salt in the wounds for them. And so this is a very convenient narrative. It's, it's, for me, it's very similar. The less reaction to this is very similar to the reaction to Bush v. Gore. That they just wanted to feel like they were robbed, right? Yeah. Well, I, I and look, it's it's not a crazy idea, right? If yeah. they if they won by a statistically ridiculous improbability, yeah, and they can show it was razor thin, and this thing might have switched. It doesn't have to have switched the whole election. Right. If it affected it just a little bit, right. they have a fairly credible argument. It's something like right. eighty thousand or hundred thousand right. votes in five counties, right? right. So. Trump, I think, is right to think that, and I think it's understandable that his enemies think that. I also think that there are things in Donald Trump's past that he does not want to have made made public. I don't know if they're crimes. Steve Bannon says it's money laundering. Maybe he doesn't want people to find out about Jared Kushner, who I do think is in some serious trouble coming up. Maybe it's just that he's not a – doesn't have $10 billion and he has $500 million. Whatever it is, he thinks that for understandable reasons – this is why I asked you that question in the beginning about – is it obstruction if you fire someone for looking into X when you're really afraid he's going to find Y, right? right? And so I think that he wants to get rid of Mueller and get rid of this investigation to head off the fact that there's something else that he's going to find that he doesn't want out right. there. 
Um, forgetting whether it's obstruction or not, or and it doesn't look like he's going to fire Mueller anyway. Do you think I'm wrong? <laughs> no. In fact, I think that that's a large part of the explanation for why we have never seen the FISA application. Yeah. So the FBI's theory was about about Trump Russia was that that Trump could be blackmailed by Putin. If that's your theory, what do you suppose they put in the FISA application? Right. So whatever they know – Along the lines of where that, – this would, by the way, have nothing to do with Page, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we've been arguing about this over here about – Right, know, right, right. But what I assume the warrant says, what the warrant application says is our theory is Putin can blackmail this guy mm-hmm. and here's why we think he can. And they may have, they may have stuff in there that uh, is along those lines and even if it wouldn't be criminal stuff necessarily, it, it would probably be embarrassing and that's right. probably why we haven't – you know, we haven't seen this stuff. And then lastly, what is your best guess about where this crap storm goes? I think that – And I'm going to hold you 100 percent accountable to this. And okay. if you're even slightly wrong, I'm going to publicly shame you. Excellent. <laughs> um, well, I think probably they're squeezing Manafort. So right now the, the target for Mueller is to get Manafort convicted. Mm-hmm. And then I think – what you probably ultimately find is that there's nothing prosecutable about Trump Russia. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a case on uh, – there's a legal prosecutable case on obstruction. I think Mueller writes a report and you know he lays out what happened in a way that's not going to be flattering to Trump but won't accuse him of crimes. And then if the Democrats win the midterms and what's in there is skeevy enough – in the, in the report, mm-hmm. and they think it's a politically opportune time to do it. They'll impeach him mm-hmm. because I think ever since Clinton got impeached, they want you know they they want a notch on their belt. It's they, their turn. They, they'll never be able to remove him because the numbers just Don't uh, unless the, you should never say never with Trump, right? I mean, there if something happens that we haven't anticipated, all bets are off. But if if things remain as they are now, um, I think the betting probably is he doesn't get impeached. Um, we don't even know that the Democrats will necessarily win the midterms. It right. probably looks that way now, but who knows? But It'll it be, looks less that way than it did a month ago. Right. Yeah. And even if they win, it might not be by a comfortable enough margin that – even though they tend to stick together in a way that the Republicans don't. I think it's politically bad for them, even as crazy as they've become, mm-hmm. that it, if, it, if it looks like it's frivolous and they impeach him, the public's going to take that out on them. Right. So I, I think if they get enough of a margin and it, you know, it gets their yayas out, they'll impeach him and then that'll be the end of it. But I, I, I kind of think Mueller writes a report and that's the end of it. Yeah, I, I think that's very plausible. The only X factor, which you alluded to, is I've always said that I don't think that the Russian investigation is going to come up with an impeachable offense. I'm holding out the possibility that I can, but I, if I had to guess, right, or had to bet. But I've often thought that Trump's reaction to these things could be worse than the underlying allegation, right. you know, and particularly if the Democrats win back the House, right? We've seen normal White Houses crippled by subpoenas from the opposing party when they have yes. – when they got their blood up, right? The idea that all these people are going to take one for the team or, you know, stick it out in the Trump White House if the House – if the Democrats get subpoena power, I I think it just – it could be a 
chaotic situation yes. that – and in a chaotic situation, how Donald Trump responds to things is not always even keeled, I think is fair to say. Right. Oh, <laughs> look. They're going to have trouble. They're already having trouble recruiting people. Yeah. Um, they'll have even more trouble. Uh, it'll be – It'll be a rough go for them if the Democrats get subpoena power. OK. One last question because I meant to ask this earlier and you are free to plead the fifth or do whatever you want in, in, in response. But you talk to a lot of people, right? I mean you're, you're – I talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I, don't ha- I don't know anything. How much of your – I, I, I don't want to ask it in a way that it sounds like it's bad faith because it's not. I'm just – this is an honest question I have got. You do these deep dives on these various aspects of this stuff, right? The FISA this, the the, the, the the shift memo, all these kinds of things. Very granular and at times there's a flavor of – that you've got an inside scoop or sense of what's going on. How often are you doing this because you're part of the feedback and you actually know some facts that you're not supposed to know or that you can't divulge that you know? Or is is it most of the time? Because I'm not a reporter, and very right. rarely do I do reporting. Right. And but every now and then I do talk to politicians, and they tell me something. And as a pundit, I, it influences my analysis and stuff. How often is that kind of feedback loop? There's nothing wrong with it, but right. how often is is that what's going on? Or are you on Mount Olympus just observing and reading the New York Times very closely? Almost never. Really, I'm, I'm uh, almost completely. Analysis because I, I always find that when people I don't get that kind of information that uh-huh. often, and when I do, I'm my antennas go up yeah, like yeah. someone's trying to spin me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the reasons I don't talk to politicians. Yeah, yeah. And I've been, you know, I, I I used to get spun by a living for people who were better at it than these guys. Right, right, right. So, right. so almost never. Uh-huh. I, there, there's uh, there's one thing I think in the last. Uh, in the last two weeks or so uh-huh. that I got a, an insight from somebody that opened my eyes to, to something. Uh-huh. But I didn't go I – don't, I don't go with what they tell me. I try to sort of like run it through the system and see if it makes sense. And the reason I, I go into this stuff uh, the way I do, which I hate doing by the way. I mean like the columns are getting like <laughs> 3,000 words long all the time. But, but the thing is if I'm useful in what – I do, and yeah. the no, aspect are. of you what are. we do. But yeah. it, but the reason is, some of this stuff is the legal hoops. People get intimidated by them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they shouldn't get intimidated by right. them because they're not all that complicated. But sometimes it is. And if I can, what the one thing I think I was good at. There was a lot of things I wasn't good at. Mm-hmm. But what I was good at as a as a prosecutor was. You take things that are very complicated and you try to break them down in a way that 12 people can understand them. Right. You don't have anything to do with – and no background in it, no right, depth right, right, in right. it. So when I write, I'm not – I mean I'm, by nature, I'm not a journalist. I'm, uh-huh. a, I'm a lawyer and I'm a particular kind of lawyer who does what I what I did and that's what I try to do. I try yeah. to take stuff that's complicated and walk walk people through it in a way that they can get it. Yeah. No, look, it's, it's a hugely – I mean I don't always necessarily – Agree with everything, but um, I think there's a uniform consensus, at least on the right, that you're a straight shooter about this stuff and an incredibly have a huge comparative advantage over not just a bunch of ink stained wretches like me, but like <laughs> other lawyers. I mean, there are a lot of lawyers who, because they seem to have a good because they have a law degree, think they're experts on this stuff. Yeah. And um, and they just sort of hold up the badge, you know, their lawyer's badge, and say, "Well, my opinion matters more than yours." Even though 
their legal careers had nothing to do with the stuff that we're talking about. Right. On, the, on the other hand, you should have seen me when I was asked to do the closing on my mother's house. <laughs> 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 Which if the guy who was sell- selling her the house hadn't walked me through it and held my hand, I don't know what how I would. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> FISA? What fi- what's FISA? Where's the FISA line? <laughs> There's no FISA in these documents. <laughs> All right. That's a great place to, to close out. Um, Andy, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much, John. A lot of fun. Great. Thank you. So again, thanks very much to um, Andy McCarthy for doing this. Um, thanks everybody who uh, have been doing the reviews, who have been following the uh, the Jonah Remnant Twitter feed. We're still thinking about doing this up to uh, boosting this to two times a week. It's just the this timing these days is a little rough because of travel schedule and the upcoming book tour and all the rest. But I want to thank everybody who's pre-ordered uh, Suicide of the West. Um, it really means a lot to me and I appreciate it greatly. And uh, check out – if you have questions, you want to see show notes on this, we'll link to a bunch of stuff that Andy has written of late on all of this. Um, you can go to jonahgoldberg.com and it will all be there soon enough. And uh, please, if you haven't subscribed yet on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or this, that or the other – uh, podcast uh, platform. It would be awesome if you could. It helps me. It helps the country. It helps uh, the tectonic plates stay where they are. And it keeps my uh, my dogs fed, which I know matters to at least some of you. And other than that, uh, we'll have a more normal podcast next week where Jack um, can um, chime in and explain things to me um, and remind me of things I was supposed to bring up. But until then, thank you for listening to The Remnant and uh, keep hope alive.